Hey, that was great, wasn't it? Thanks, Laura. Appreciate that. Yeah. I was thinking about uh, Moses floating around out in the desert and uh, that psalm tied to his wanderings around and leading the people. We've been looking to Moses to be kind of a uh, model for us, uh, somebody that we could uh, emulate, a mentor, if you will, uh, toward us becoming more servant leaders. And um, I think you're probably uh, aware of this, but both the Old Testament and the New Testament recognize uh, that Moses is sort of a forerunner to Jesus. In um, Deuteronomy, uh, back in the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy 18, um, we read these words. Uh, Moses is talking here, and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He's talking about Jesus. Right? And Moses is saying, you know, God's revealed to me, and he's talking to the people, that God's going to raise up a prophet like me, like Moses. Moses and Jesus uh, have similar roles uh, from among you uh, and from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. This prophet that God is going to raise up, Jesus in the future, it's to him that you need to listen. And then if you go all the way to uh, the book of Acts, uh, this is actually quoted by uh, uh, Peter as he's preaching here in Acts chapter 3 and verse 22, uh, we read uh, these words. It says here, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And then he goes on and talks about the history of uh, how Jesus has come to us by God's will. So Moses is a type of Jesus. Uh, He's a savior, Moses. He rescues God's people from Egypt. He rescues Abraham's descendants from uh, slavery and captivity like Jesus. Our savior rescues us uh, from sin and from eternal death. uh, That uh, was our destiny before Jesus. And so we saw that when Moses was 40 years old, he came to a defining moment in his life. Uh, Way back in the book of Exodus, uh, you remember the story. We talked about it last week. Uh, He comes upon an Egyptian, uh, maybe taskmaster, beating on a Hebrew slave. And uh, he has to make a decision. Is he going to identify with his earthly family, the Egyptians, and all the privileges that are involved in that? Or is he going to identify with the people of God, with his Hebrew roots, and uh, choose... uh, to identify with them. And as you know, he kills the Egyptian, he buries him in the sand, and he identifies with his Hebrew roots. If you go all the way uh, to the New Testament in Hebrews, um, this incident, a big deal is made out of this incident. The author of Hebrews, nobody really knows who wrote Hebrews. Uh, There's a lot of speculation, but the author of Hebrews writes this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. He was looking to the future, to what was coming after uh, this life. And so... um, We also know from Acts chapter 7 that by this time, by 40 years old, um, Moses knew that God was going to deliver the people through him. 
Moses knew it, but the people didn't know it. And Moses, remember in Acts chapter 7, says that uh, uh, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man, avenged him uh, by striking down the Egyptian. And here's the verse. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And it kind of reminds you that when Jesus came to his own people, the Jewish people, they didn't understand that he was there to deliver them and uh, to save them as well. And so, again, Moses and Jesus, Moses is a prototype, if you will, So what happens next, uh, we talked about all that last week, but what happens next on the very next day, in fact, after Moses killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, in Exodus chapter 2, we kind of continue on uh, with the story. It says in verse 13, when he went out the very next day, behold, two Hebrew people were struggling together. They were fighting with each other. And he said to the man in the wrong, he said, why do you strike your companion? And uh, he answered, uh, this Jewish slave said, you know, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses was afraid. And he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So the very next day, Moses goes out. He sees these two guys. He tries to you know, mediate between them, and he ends up running away to a place called Midian. Midian was no place. It was in um, northwest uh, Saudi Arabia, what would be called Saudi Arabia today, by the Sinai Peninsula. And it's just desert. It's just, you know, the only people that were there were um, some nomad traveling shepherds trying to find water and some grass uh, for their flocks and so forth. And I would suggest to you that this is Moses' first exodus from Egypt. He runs into the desert of Midian. And um, when he gets there, uh, again, it's basically nomad families And uh, Moses ends up becoming a part of one of these nomad families, sort of marries into the family, and spends the next 40 years of his life in the desert. So remember, Moses died at 120, so the first third of his life he's learning in Egypt and so forth. Second third of his life, he's out in the desert. And uh, he's got a lot of time, 40 years, uh, to think about things. And um, something happens to him in the desert because... When he comes back to actually lead the people uh, out of um, Egypt, we find that in, um, again, in Hebrews chapter 11, where Moses is being talked about, it says, uh, by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. First time he leaves Egypt, he's scared to death. The Pharaoh's trying to kill him. Second time he leaves with all the people, He's fulfilling his dream, his, the, you know, that God had given him, and uh, he's not afraid at all. So I want to suggest to you something happened to Moses in the desert that he's not the same guy when he comes out of the desert as he was when he went into the desert. 
something happens to Moses in this 40-year period of time. And uh, I'm going to suggest to you that uh, basically uh, he has some attitude adjustments that happen out in the desert, uh, 40 years of spending in the desert. And I want to suggest to you this morning uh, that what we have here is uh, interesting, something called the birth, death, and rebirth of a dream. Now, when I was younger, uh, I went to this seminar called Basic Youth Conflicts. I don't know if anybody remembers those, but they were around. And um, I learned this concept that God often will give a dream, okay, to somebody or a vision, if you will, of what they're supposed to do for their future. Um, and young people, listen, I mean, starts young sometimes, right? God had impressed upon Moses, you're going to deliver my people. And Moses got this dream, and then Moses goes after it, and he falls on his face because he tries to do it in his own strength. Then he's out in the desert for 40 years, and he comes back in God's strength and in God's timing, and all of a sudden he's able to do the dream that God planted in him as a seed when he was much younger, you know? So the birth, death, and then the rebirth of a dream. And uh, I'm going to suggest to you that while Moses, uh, you know, is out in the desert, he's got time to think about all of this. And uh, eventually, when he learns and changes and so forth, God rebirths the dream, beginning at the burning bush. God speaks to him and says, okay, you know, now it's time. Now it's going to be my time and my strength. And uh, we're going to go back there. And, uh, and we're going to take those people out of Egypt. And they're going to become this nation that I promised Father Abraham. And I want to suggest this is a pattern to you. You know, God came to Abraham, right? God says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, great promises. God's like, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And out of you is going to come this Messiah. And out of him is going to come blessing to all the ethne, all the families of the earth. You know? And uh, wow, that's a great promise. And so... You know, Abraham's like, okay, let's go, you know. And so they go along, and, and Abraham's like 100, and she's like 90, and still no baby. And so let's do this ourselves. Let's, you know, take the handmaid, and, and Ishmael is born. And uh, God says, no, that's not the person that I'm sending. I'm sending the person of my promise. And a year later, the dream is, you know, the dream goes away because God says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. And a year later, all of a sudden, Isaac is born, and God's like, yes, that's my son. Let's go forward. And the dream is rebirth at 100. And uh, she's 90 and so forth. And Isaac is born. Take the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph? God comes to Joseph, gives him a dream. He has a dream that all of his brothers are going to bow down to him someday. Now, he's young. He's the youngest, Right. And uh, he tells his brothers this. That's probably a mistake, okay? And so his brothers, you know, sell him into slavery. And he's like, oh, end of the dream. How's this ever going to work out? But he's deported to Egypt, right? And uh, you know his story as, as, as it unfolds and so forth. And uh, again, uh, years later, his brothers are down there, bowing down before him, begging for food. And the dream is fulfilled. The birth, the death and the rebirth of the dream. The Jewish people were promised the Messiah back you know, through Abraham and all through the prophets in the Old Testament, and Jesus comes, and he's crucified, and he's crucified on the cross. Uh, it's the death of a dream. You might remember there were two guys uh, after Jesus was crucified on the road to Emmaus, 
And uh, these two guys don't know it, but Jesus is walking with them, the risen Jesus. And uh, here's what they say. They say, we had hoped, right, that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. But our dream died, you know. However, three days later, up from the grave he arose, right? And the dream is reborn, and all of a sudden, you know, we're in a whole different place. And so I want to suggest to you that that's what's happening with Moses, that uh, his dream died. God gave him a dream. You're going to be an instrument to deliver my people. It's going to be great. And uh, he goes at it in his own strength, and uh, it just doesn't work. He kills the Egyptian. Nobody understands him. The whole thing falls on its face. He's out in the desert 40 years, 40 years to learn some new things. Now, maybe you can relate to this in your life. Maybe you had a dream as a kid. Maybe God came to you and put some gifts into your and put some dreams and some vision into your future. And maybe when you first came to Christ, you asked him, you know, what do you want me to do for you? And maybe God planted the seed of a dream. And you saw yourself someday, you know, doing this or that for God and serving him and so forth. And maybe you really went at it. Maybe you went to college to study, you know, that particular thing and and so on and so forth. But stuff happened. And the dream just sort of got lost somewhere along the line, you know? And uh, I think this is pretty instructive because, you know, uh, when Moses is 80, the dream comes back. God rebirths the dream at 80. So don't say you're too old. Don't say, well, I'm too old to do that. I'm too old to love teenagers. Never. Never. You know? Um, And so whatever the dream is, perhaps God, you know, uh, is going to rebirth that dream. And and it's not just in ministry, but, you know, maybe when you got married, you had a dream and you thought, you know, I've been to many weddings where the vows that the people write themselves say, God, I'm so thankful that you sent just the right person to me. This is your choice for me. And uh, they've got this dream about how this marriage is going to work out. And they get down the road a piece and all of a sudden it doesn't work out. It goes south. And the dream sort of dies. Maybe you have a child. And you get this idea and and you have this dream planted by God about, you know, uh, how this child is going to develop and what their personality is. And you're watching for clues. And you get this idea of, oh, I I see my daughter doing this. I can see my son being like that. And, And it gets down the road a piece and all of a sudden the dream dies. Don't give up. Don't give up. Maybe God planted that seed at the very beginning, like he did with Moses. And, and, and it just, you know, Moses tried it in his own strength and tried to make it happen, but it, it didn't happen. And, um, you know, maybe this uh, idea of the death of a dream uh, causes Moses to kind of question his whole existence. Uh, I mean, Moses, you know, thought that this is what God had for me. And uh, I made the choice to forget about identifying with the Egyptians and I'm going to go with God and God's got a plan for my life and it's going to be great. And then the minute he goes for it, the, the first move that he makes in that direction, it blows up and it falls flat. And uh, maybe Moses starts to question and ask himself, you know, I, I wonder if that dream was really from God. Maybe it was just my imagination. And Moses has sort of a, if I could say so, a midlife crisis. Right? It's kind of like questioning, you know, who am I? And, you know, I've just been kind of going along here, and, you, you know, I, I, I don't know what my destiny is and so forth. 
And I say, wait a minute, you know, don't count Moses out just yet because there's still the rebirth of the dream coming up. But out in the desert, uh, Moses has a lot to think about. He's there for 40 years, and he's all alone. He's by himself. And, um, you know, he chose against the Egyptians, and the Hebrews chose against him. And now Pharaoh, on top of all of that, is out to kill him. And so he's alone, and he's got a lot of time to think. And I'm going to sort of venture that he's thinking about giving up on the dream. I think he's sort of thinking, you know what? It's over. It's never going to happen. And uh, however, God is at work, right? Just like we sang. He's a way maker, right? And even when we don't feel him and even when we don't see him, uh, God's at work. And it just so happens that there's a priest in Midian, right? A priest out there in the desert. Now, the Midianites uh, were descendants of Abraham. So it's possible that this priest was actually a worshiper of the true God. Um, He happens to have seven daughters. Just happens to have seven daughters. And uh, they happen to take his flock to the well where Moses is sitting. So here's Moses sitting at the well all alone, all by himself. I don't know how long it took him to get from Egypt to this well. I mean, it's quite a ways. He's had a lot of time to be alone. And he sits down by this well, and it just so happens uh, that this priest's seven daughters uh, come to that well uh, and so forth. So we can pick the story up in Exodus chapter 2. Let me read a little bit of what happens here to Moses in Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. And um, here's, here's what happens. The priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs uh, to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, uh, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, well, an Egyptian delivered us uh, out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left him there? Call him that he may eat bread with us, right? And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son, called him Gershom, uh, because Moses said, I've been a sojourner uh, out in a foreign land. So think about this, right? Here's a bad thing, it seems to me, um, when I read this again. uh, It says that um, Moses, verse 21, Moses was content to dwell in the desert, right? He gets a wife, he gets a couple of kids, he gets a job, and Moses becomes content to just get up in the morning, go to work at night, raise the kids. What about the dream? What about God's will for your life? What about this, you know, marvelous part of God's eternal plan, Moses? Now he's content. Now I'm just content to just, you know, have a wife, a couple of kids, and a job, and, and that's enough for me. And then he says, uh, on top of that, the very last uh, thing he says, uh, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. I'm a man without a country. And it's okay. I'm content. Uh, Poor me. I'm a man without a country. Nobody, you know, I don't have anybody. Uh, But I bet that he and his new father-in-law, 
Zipporah's father, the Midian priest, uh, become friends, and Moses probably shares his dream at some point, and uh, the two of them talk about it and how the whole dream fell on its face and so forth. Uh, And I think this because if we fast forward to Exodus chapter 18, uh, there's an incident, and um, and I'll just read this for you uh, to see what happens. Kind of after Moses leads the Hebrew people out of Egypt, we're on the other side of that whole thing now. We're out in the middle of no place again. And uh, Jethro, that's also a name for Moses' father-in-law, two different names. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons, and uh, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, you know, the God of my father was my help and delivered me uh, from the sword of Pharaoh. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And then, um, and when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you, and your wife and your two sons uh, are with her, and Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down to him and kissed him. And uh, they asked each other, you know, how they're doing, what's, how's their welfare, and they went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon him along the way and how the Lord delivered him from all of that stuff. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and uh, that he had delivered them out of, the land, out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from underneath the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses and uh, the father-in-law before God. They worshiped together. That's sort of a family reunion, right, on the other side of everybody leaving uh, Egypt and getting out there. And they all get together. And you can just tell by the way they, that you know, Jethro became very familiar with the history of Moses. And so there's not a whole lot of narrative about these 40 years in the desert other than what we've read. But Moses comes out of the desert, uh, as I suggested, a very different person than went in 40 years ago. And I want to suggest to you that when we go through desert experiences, right, uh, our focus goes from circumstances, which, you know, we, which can be anything, our circumstances, and it goes to our attitudes, when we go through a desert experience, uh, we first, you know, become cognizant of the circumstances and so forth that are surrounding us, as Moses did. And, and, uh, but then we start to think about, how am I going to respond to these circumstances? What's my attitude going to be? And uh, I would say that, you know, you can't choose your circumstances. What happens to you, you don't have much say in. But you do choose your attitudes, and how you respond, right? We do choose how we choose to respond 
uh, to the various circumstances that uh, come our way. And circumstances can be anything. And uh, I want to suggest that attitudes are so important. It's not so much in life what happens to us that matters. It's what happens in us that matters. So God allowed lots of things to happen to Moses. But Moses was responsible to decide how he was going to respond to the things that happened to him. See if you agree with uh, Chuck Swindoll. He said, attitude is more important than facts. Your attitude is more important than the facts of your life. And uh, I got to thinking about that. And, you know, I thought, have you ever gotten into an argument about facts? (laughs) He said that last Tuesday. No, it was Wednesday. Oh, no, we were on our, he was on his way to work. No, no, we were on our way to church. You know? Oh, no, he was having coffee. No, it was orange juice. You know, what's your attitude when you're arguing over facts? You know, uh, attitude is more important than the facts. And, you know, we have some friends that are kind of like that. And when we're with them, they're always like they're arguing about facts. You know, I just want to say, stop it. Just stop it. Who cares? It really doesn't matter. But your attitude in the midst of this matters. Because it's either going to go forward or it's going to fall apart. Uh, And the truth is, you know, there are a lot of things we can't change. But we can change our attitudes. Um, You can't change your past. But you can change your attitude toward your past. You you really can't change your past. Right? But your attitude towards your past, wasn't it it in the past that God was training you for the future? And is your, does your attitude change when you bring faith into the midst of it? And instead of like just using your past as an excuse, well, poor me, this happened when I was a kid and I've never been the same since. You robbed me of my life and, you know, and so I will oh, change your attitude. What if God allowed that for a reason and a purpose and, and he knows what he's doing? Can we trust him? Uh, you can't change what's right and wrong. God Gave us the Ten Commandments, this is right, this is wrong. You can't change that. People are trying to change what's right and wrong, but you can't change what's right and wrong. You can change your attitude towards what's right and wrong and submit to what's right and wrong. Uh, You can't change another person against their will. I had to learn that as a pastor. I thought I could just change people. You know what? You cannot change another person against their will. You can reason with them. You can love them. Uh, you can uh, have, change your attitude toward them because they're arguing with you and so You have a loving attitude. That's your choice. But you can't change another person against their will. Um, we can't change the fact of death. Everybody dies. But we can change our attitude toward death. And there's a whole lot of things like that. Just to say that attitude you know, matters. Life is pretty much 10% what happens to us and 90% how we react to it. 10% circumstances, 90% attitude, if you will. And um, when you think about Moses, um, I think he was in the desert to have some attitude adjustments. And uh, when he was, you know, the prince of Egypt, he thought he could deliver God's people by himself. Uh, When he left the desert, he says to God, you know, unless you go with me, I'm not going. 
I can't do this myself. I already tried that with the killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand, do that, you know, and so on. I can't do it. And unless you go with me, uh, I'm not going to be able to do it. And God, it seems, was so pleased with Moses' uh, development that when you get to Exodus uh, chapter 33, and we looked at this before, verse 11, uh, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. God and Moses got so tight together that God spoke to Moses like he spoke to Jesus. Moses is a forerunner of uh, our Savior, Jesus. And uh, he has this great relationship with him. And in uh, Numbers chapter 12, um, there's an incident that happens in uh, the life of Moses that, uh, again, I think is instructive and helps us to just see the changes that happened in Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, Um, And again, this is after leading the people out of Egypt. We get ahead of ourselves a little bit. But Moses' sister, Miriam, and Moses' brother, Aaron, speak against him. All right? And so here's what happens in uh, Numbers uh, chapter 12 and verse 1. Miriam, and because she's first, I think she's the instigator. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. I'm guessing this is a second marriage. Uh, Cush uh, is modern-day Ethiopia today. And Moses apparently married somebody from Ethiopia, perhaps a racial thing. And um, he had married a Cushite woman. And so Miriam and Aaron speak against Moses because of his wife. Now, I know you've never done that to anybody because of their spouse and so forth. But, you know, in this family, uh, we got a little dysfunction going on. So... Verse 2, it wasn't really about the wife. Here's the real issue, verse 2. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Here's the thing that makes a leader groan. God has spoken to Moses, given him a dream. He's got a job to do. You know, he's out in the desert. He's, he's, he blew it, if you will, tried to do it in his own strength, couldn't do it. Uh, And these kids are like, you know, they're older than Moses, and so they're looking at their younger brother, Moses, and uh, he's like, you know, has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Don't we count? Yeah, I'm sure you've got your own dream, you guys. Crazy Aaron making the golden calf at the, you know. You should listen harder, Aaron, right? Now the man Moses, here's the, here's the adjustment I think, right? Now the man Moses was very meek. Meek. More than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Meek. What is meek? Meek is not weak, right? Meek is strength under control. Jesus was meek. He had strength. He could call down 10,000 angels if he wanted to, but it was under control to submit to the purposes of God, to the dream that God had for him, to go to the cross and to become the savior of the world. And so, um, you know, uh, he's meek, he's gentle, he's without resentment, he's humble. Again, I say it's an attitude that he developed that he needed some time in the desert to develop after he had been an Egyptian prince and in line maybe to be the pharaoh. And so look what happens here. Suddenly, the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out here, you three. 
to the tent of meeting, right? And the Lord, uh, and the three uh, of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said to them, listen to me, hear my words, okay? If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And when, uh, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. God got mad at Moses' older brother and sister. And uh, it seems to me that um, we can transform our whole lives if we'll simply take responsibility for our own attitudes and not blame other people. Um, Rick Warren uh, said this. He said, you're going to meet three kinds of people in your life. (laughs) He said, some will be accusers. They'll accuse other people or circumstances as the reason for why they're so miserable. Uh, Others, he said, uh, will be excusers, accusers, excusers. They'll have excuses. They'll have reasons for all their faults and shortcomings. And then the third will be choosers who accept responsibility for their own development in the presence of God. So let me just end with this. You I don't know if you've ever seen like, you know, a 10-ton elephant at a circus who's tied to a little stake in the ground by one of its legs and it, it's confined, you know, by a little stake in the ground. But there's two things uh, about elephants that are kind of unique. Number one, they have great memories. And number two, they're not very smart. And so um, when they're babies, maybe just 300 pounds, right, um, they get tied to a stake that's put in the ground. And, and those baby elephants pull at that stake probably 10,000 times. They're just trying to get away, trying to get away. They can't get away. They're tied to the stake. And uh, finally they realize, I just can't get away. And at that point, they transfer it into their memory. And when the elephant grows, and it's no longer true that they can't pull that stake out and go do whatever they want, you know, they have their memory takes over, and they say, I can't get away from the stake. I can't get away. So you can have a 10-ton elephant who you know, is tied to that stake and will stay there simply because they remember the incident from their youth. And at that point, when their memory takes over, they can't get away because they're making a choice to believe the past. And I want to suggest we can be like that. You know, Our attitudes are often shaped when we were kids. Somebody says something to us, you know, you'll never amount to anything. Uh, You know, nobody ever loved you and stuff like that. And we put a stake in our minds. And we're tied to that stake and we believe that person who taught us. And somewhere along the line, God comes. And God says, I love you. I've got a dream for your life. I've got a purpose for having you here at this time and in this, you know, culture. And and I, I I have a purpose for your whole life. You're going to become a servant leader and a part of my kingdom. And if you can't hear that because you're tied to that stake in the past and you can't believe that God really loves you and really has a plan for your life, uh, it's because you're tied to that stake in the past and the memory has taken over 
instead of allowing you to go forward by faith. We read in the Bible that Moses went forward uh, by seeing the invisible. He saw God, and he came out of the desert a different person than when he went in. He had some attitude adjustments. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for Moses. He does help us to understand Jesus. Uh, He's a person, Father, that you uh, have put in the Bible for our benefit. You tell us that everything that happened in the Old Testament is written down so that we could learn from it and gain uh, knowledge and understanding of your ways. And so as we study Moses, we just invite you to continue to reveal to us the truth about ourselves, uh, about the dream that you've put inside of us, about where we're at. Perhaps we're going through a desert experience, and I just pray that you'll help us to be open, to learn, and uh, that we'll be amazed that even when we're not aware of it, you're at work. You were at work in Moses' life. He had no clue that you were teaching him how to survive in the desert because you were going to use him to lead you know, thousands and thousands of people through the desert, and they were going to need to know how to go. And so, again, we're just so confident in you. We thank you that we know you and that you've drawn us to yourself. Help us, Father, to appreciate you more for Jesus' sake. Amen.